Fill your heart with love and give people the benefit of the doubt always. I mean, look for the good in people. And, uh, you know, I teach my daughter this too. How The world is not as it is. The world is as we are. It's how we see it. So if you see yourself in a, in a bright, positive light, you're going to see the world that way too. And I know that can be hard, but start with the inside. And if you do that, your exterior, your exterior world will change. Do you need encouragement to turn tragedies into your own triumphant life story? If so, this podcast is for you. Listen to powerful guests who have persevered through challenges so you can gain strength to build your championship life. The host of Professor of Perseverance Podcast, Dr. James Perdue. Hey, it's a time again for us to come on in. Learn something from our guests coming in, okay? Something that you can grab a hold of. We just one little nugget of information that can help you get through whatever you're going through. All right, maybe the same thing, similar thing, maybe something totally different. But their idea, their way of doing may help you as well. And then the best thing about this, pass it on, pay it forward, help the next person get through a struggle and have a great life. All right, today we're going to talk with guy's named Dallas, okay? and But he said uh, he found he was adopted. Then later on, he becomes suicidal. Then he got addicted to drugs and alcohol. And now he is sober, pain-free, and we're going to learn how he did this. So welcome to the show, Dallas. Where is yep. it at? Where is his name? There it is. Goodlet. Yes, sir. Yes. Thanks for having me. Hey, appreciate you being here and sharing your journey, uh, your story. Again, sometimes uh, it's not a pretty story at the beginning, but I love the outcome when I get to talk with people like uh, that's been through this. Yes. Well, um, yeah, I just tell you kind of how my journey started. I like to break my life up into chapters. And uh, chapter one, I would say, started when I was about five years old. That's when I found out I was first adopted. My mom put me up on her lap. She just explained to me that, you know, that we're, you know, we're your real parents, but we adopted you from another family. They didn't get, like I say, they didn't get in real specifics at that time. I was five years old. And uh, that's kind of when my life, when I feel like my life started right there is kind of when I felt different. I felt like I didn't really belong anywhere. I felt like I had a lot of shame in me, a lot of embarrassment uh, and even a lot of anger at that age. Cause I just felt like that I wasn't wanted. Um, you know, I had a lot of questions at that time, just being five years old. So that's really like, I feel like my life just kind of started. And from then on, from about five to 19, uh, a lot of trouble, a lot of trouble in school, uh, a lot of trouble even with law enforcement, um, fighting, a lot of, uh, like I say, that's just immense shame and, and pain and regret. And uh, There's a lot of anger built up for not knowing. Uh, like you said, felt like you wasn't wanted, that you were just mm-hmm. pushed off and given away. And at five, there's a lot of things to deal with at the age of five. Right. Well, just being, you know, being a kid's hard enough growing up in the world. Exactly, man. exactly. And right, and then let alone finding out that, you know, you were given up for adoption. And I mean, even at that age, I, I knew what was going on. So, um, yeah, it just led to a lot, a lot of troubles in my life. Uh but then again, I don't want to paint it too bleak of a picture because my my hope for anybody out there is life is all about perspective and how we kind of see the world is 
So even at that time, I, I grew up with a great family, a very big family, uh, aunts, uncles, cousins. So um, it could have been way worse. You know, I look at a lot of kids that grew up in foster homes and yeah. get bounced around homes. It could have been way worse. But, uh, you know, there was obviously just things I wanted that I didn't have that other kids had. And that was just somebody to call my mom and dad. Uh, so yeah, it just, it led to just a lot, a lot of pain from, from about five to 19. And then, uh, you know, at 19 years old is really when I, when I spiraled off into drug and alcohol addiction. And at that age, like I grew up thinking I at least knew who my mom, who my biological mom and dad were. Um, and I'll get into all that here in a minute. But at 19 is when I found out that they were who I thought they were. My biological parents were in fact not. Um, so that's when I kind of went off the deep end with drugs and alcohol abuse, uh, that lasted for a long time. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it, growing up, I, I thought I at least knew who my biological family was. Like I used to wrestle, uh, big into sports and I would always see this family at, at wrestling tournaments. So I would see them and I thought, you know, Hey, there's my biological brothers. There's my biological mom and dad. So mm -hmm. I never spoke with them because, again, I had a lot of anger and resentment towards them, a lot of that shame. So I would see them, but I never even spoke to them. But my dad and mom, they would point out, they would say, you know, that's who we adopted you from. And these words are very key. You'll find out here soon. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, so, at, yeah, at 19, how this went, it's kind of chapter two of my life. Um, I was working at a Kmart. Anybody remembers Kmart? I don't know if they're still even around right oh, now. Oh, I remember old Big, big <laughs> yeah. K Kmart. Oh yeah. So I was nineteen at that time. I didn't go to Blue Light Specials. Time. Right. Yep. Yep. All right. And, go ahead. Uh, well, I was kind of drifting through life at that time, and I was nineteen, working in the garden department. I can remember this like it was yesterday because it was one of the biggest moments of my life. And who I thought my biological mom came in that day and wanted to. Uh, she gave me her phone number, and she we you know wanted to talk. Well, again, I didn't want anything to do with her. So I took the phone number, you know, I was respectful and, uh, just put it in my pocket and went home that day. And when I went home that day, I was talking to my dad and I said, dad, um, her name was Beth. And I said, Beth came into the store today and, you know, wanted to talk and I, I just don't want anything to do with her. And that's when my dad looked at me that day and he said, well, you know, Dallas, she's not your, she's not your biological mom. Oh, wow. And, yeah. My, uh, I explained this but the they same had way told to you that, but they had told you that. Well, and this, here's where it gets tricky. So, yeah. Um, at that time, and it's the way I explain it to everybody, like, you know, how'd that feel? And I just tell people, it's kind of like, uh, you know, if you ever see like a war movie and there's a soldier kind of steps on a landmine and, mm -hmm. or steps near one, there's just like loud explosion and everything's kind of slow motion. That's kind of how I felt any shred of identity that I, that I barely had it anyway. Yeah. I felt like everything kind of exploded. And, uh, I didn't know what was going on. I was like, you know, what are you talking about? And that set off about five years of very misguided anger, hatred towards my parents. Cause I felt like they had lied to me. You know, mm -hmm. how could they not tell me this? So fast forward five years after I took some personal steps to uh, get over the pain and the anger, we had a talk and they explained to me that, the courts, when you have a closed adoption case, you're not supposed to know who you're, yeah. you're not supposed to know any information. Yeah. And, um, they were advised by the court counselor and the kind of a therapist there that that's how you explain it to your child. You don't get into details and you wait for your child to come talk to you and ask questions. Well, 
I never wanted to talk about it. So I never asked any questions. Mm -hmm. And they just, they, you know, they didn't get specifics because come to find, it would have been too much for me to handle at five years old. Um, I found out my biological mom, I was actually taken from her from the state. She was in a place okay. in a, a mental institution and the state had taken me and then put me in a, a foster home. And that's who I just always thought was my biological parents and they weren't. Yeah. So, uh, again, that, that was one of the lessons I learned on this journey was to give people the benefit of the doubt and see the good in people. And my parents that, you know, they didn't have any intention. They, they weren't setting out to lie to me, to hurt me. It was just what they were advised to do by, you know, so-called professionals. And that's what they oh, did. Yeah. So I just, like I said, I just never really brought it up because I didn't want to talk about it with them. So they were kind of waiting for me to bring it up and I was waiting for them to bring it up and just nobody did. Yeah. It's amazing how these so-called professionals that, they're not in that situation, right. uh, but they're telling everybody else what they ought to be doing. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, so I, yeah, I, I, I get to understand that uh, part. Okay. Uh, now, um, so a lot of times, yeah, neither voluntarily or taken away, it's better for you to get into that adoption area than at home. That's mm -hmm. why people volunteer give them up. They know they can't give them the life they deserve and uh, right. move it on. But, of course, those people, they try their best to hang in and find out how they're doing, going to school and whatever. Uh, mentally with your mother, uh, I don't know how she would, if or if she even tried to keep up with you like that. But, yeah, it's usually when they're like that, being taken away, it's something going on. It's supposed to benefits you in the long run right to grow better yeah yeah it's kind of crazy she uh i had come across some handwritten letters she had wrote written to me um okay then she passed those along to my foster family and it was kind of sad because uh like her handwriting is kind of weird it looks just like mine and it was all coherent you know she said that she had got put in this uh, mental institution and for drugs i suppose and she said you know once you're in these walls even if you're not crazy, it'll make you go crazy. Yeah, I can believe um, that. So, yeah, I mean, the letters she had written, they seem coherent and normal. But then again, you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know. But like you said, I'm sure there was a good reason for the state to come in and, and place me in a different home, obviously. So, you know, I don't look back with any really regrets in life at all about anything. So I'm sure it was there was a reason for it. I remember, so. uh, I remember, well, when I was like, 14, 15 years old, I guess. And some kids had moved across the street from us. And my mom and dad, I don't know if they knew them or got to talk to their parents or whatever, but found out that the brother, sister, they were twins and they were adopted through this couple. Oh, and, really? Yeah. And it's a, but we, they told us, my mom and dad told us about it, but I never said anything to the kid, never talked about it or anything like that. And I'm in a wheelchair, I got my neck broke playing football, and mm. I was in bed one day, and I'm like 20 years old. And then this guy, the boy, comes over to me and says, Oh, James, I'm going to have this talk with you. He said, I don't want you to feel anything different about me or anything, but I'm adopted. I go, uh. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, man, I've known about that for about five years now. What? <laughs> and I said, I said, I just figured you knew about us. I said, man, I don't care if you're adopted or anything. Like, yeah, we're friends. And, you right. know, that, that's who you consider your mom and dad. And But it was it was strange. He didn't find out again until, like, he was, like, 
16, 17 years old, oh, you know, geez. that, that late in the year. And so he was really questioning. Uh, yeah. Things. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, like, you know, I was saying earlier, things could always be worse. Like I would, I, I, you know, at least I knew when I was a young kid that I knew, um, I would have hated to find out that I was, you know, adopted at, at an older age. I mean, yeah, I found out that my biological parents weren't my biological parents, but like I say, I hear some stories where people are in their thirties and go their whole lives, you know, not knowing and then find out one day. So, so some yeah. weird story. I don't know how I came across it. And his man and woman are dating and then come to find out they were brother sisters. Oh and no. Well, <laughs> it, it, because they were put up in adoption yeah. in the same, same city or, or wherever a community, uh, but at different houses. Uh, but yeah. they were going to school together and everything, and no one told in, neither one of them any, anything different until well, they found out they were dating. It's funny you mention that because that was always a fear of mine. Like I would meet someone at a bar or somewhere, and then you know have a child, would you whatever, and then find out yeah. that's my biological sister. So that was kind of a weird. I can imagine I that irrational would be, fear, but looks like it sounds yeah, like yeah, it yeah. I, I would, yeah, I would think that would be a concern. Yeah, that right. If, if I'm out here, how many other brothers sisters are out there? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. So you went through this uh, depression where you're doing your drugs, alcohol, and we don't have to get into the whole details of that. Uh, but uh, that went on for like how long? And and then finally, you what what got you to wake up and move? Yeah. On? So yeah, and like I say, when I was when I found this out at 19, I had already been drinking a little bit in high school, but smoked a little pot here and there. But when I found who, that out. Who hadn't? Right, right, right. I was, you know, probably like most high school kids, but yeah, when I found yeah. that out, it was pure, like the way I describe this to people, like when you hear suicide by cop, mm-hmm. I was like suicide by drugs. So okay, I luckily grew up too in a church in a Christian household and suicide mm-hmm. to me was kind of the ultimate sin. So I never had the guts or wanted to kill myself, but I was hoping to through drugs and alcohol. So I got you. I got you. Yeah. So about five years, I mean, I was drinking... I mean, about a fifth of vodka every day, smoking pot from the time I woke up, from the time I went to bed. I mean, literally, I would be smoking pot before I even went to the bathroom in the morning. Yeah. Um, copious amounts of cocaine. There was times where I'd be doing so much cocaine, my heart, I felt like it would explode. And, uh, you know, instead of going to the hospital, I, w- I would do more, just hoping, just blow it up. This is it. I just had no self-worth. I had no self, I had no value. I felt like nobody, and especially when I found out that, that foster family had given me up for adoption too. I felt like just, I had no worth. Like nobody loves me. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and well, even you're trying, I you're trying to, you're trying to any way you can to get rid of that pain. Right. And, uh, yeah. And even if I couldn't find drugs or alcohol at that time, I would go to the, uh, I would go to Walmart and pick up like cold and flu medicine and just take a bunch of that. And then, uh, there was times I felt like I was having a stroke on that. Um, so, yeah, it was just, and then cigarettes, and then I, anything, like even overeating. I was about 100 pounds heavier than I am now. So, it was literally anything I could do to put my body to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that lasted about five good years. And in that five-year span, I probably spoke to my parents like three times in five years. I just had so much anger at them. And uh, it was just a bad time in my life, horrible time. I'm surprised I'm not dead from it. So, anyway, after... That period, I was about 24 years old, and what I would say, besides my daughter being born, the most important day of my life was this day, and I uh, I took a bunch of psilocybin mushrooms, 
And this is mm. over, this is 20 years ago almost. And now I know they're becoming a little more mainstream to treat people with depression and anxiety. Uh, but this is, like I say, this is before any of that was even talked about. So yeah. I took a, a bunch of these and I ended up at a cemetery of all places. I don't know how I even got there, but I ended up at a cemetery and the whole time I was messed up, I was still praying every day, wanted to get help, but didn't I, I did not want to be in this position. So I felt like, this was a day God like came to me and said, let's change this. So I ended up in this cemetery and I remember like it was yesterday. It was about the sun was about to go down and I was looking over these gravestones. And as the sun was like going over these gravestones, that's when I felt like the old me, it was like, it's almost like a metaphor symbolic. Like when that went over those gravestones, that's when the old me died. And then a new, person like was born in, a, in, a, in an instant so all these thoughts all these labels that i put on myself the no no worth no value the shame the hatred regret all that stuff it was just switched like that into positivity so i was over overwhelmed with love and acceptance mm -hmm. and uh, forgiveness and something i tell people all the time too is like when you're in a state of alcoholism or drug addiction one of the biggest things we can do is forgive ourselves amen brother right because we blame i tell ourselves. other people you know we're taught to forgive others yeah that we have felt that wrong does but no one tells us I, I i and i don't know the bible you know perfect like like a lot of people but i don't remember reading it where it says i gotta forgive, forgive myself and right. you would think in there somewhere it would tell you that. And it yeah, might well, do right. it. Like I said, I don't know the whole Bible uh, per se like you, and it might say that. But well, yeah, we yeah. have got to forgive ourselves, and we are we are the worst critics on ourselves, oh, the yeah. worst judgment on ourselves. No right. matter what anybody else says, we're, we're 10 times that worse. Yeah, exactly. Right. we got to forgive what we've done in the past and, and move forward. Right. And you nailed it there. Like, not only do we have to like, I had to forgive myself as far as like what you said, there's like all the labels I put on myself because we, yeah, we talk to ourselves a million times worse than any stranger on the street would. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you would never know it for me. I put on a happy face. I mean, oh yeah, nobody even really knew I was messed up all the time because I, I was a functioning drug addict and alcoholic. I mean, yeah, hardly anybody knows. And, uh, but not only do you have to forgive yourself for just how you talk to yourself, but like you said too, like when somebody is on drugs and alcohol, I can't tell you how many, I don't want to say unforgivable acts I did, but I did a lot of stuff that I'm not proud of at all. Um, things I would think, things I would say. And when you're, when you do those things, some, a lot of times you're going to do more drugs and alcohol to numb that. So not only was I numbing the feeling of being adopted, not loved. I was also numbing things I would do from like the prior weekend. You know, mm -hmm, stuff, mm -hmm. I cut somebody out or again, just things I would think. Um, so yeah, self-forgiveness was, it was a major thing. So when I was on that, I guess you call it a trip. I, the way I explain this to people is I, I feel like I went through about 20 years of therapy in about two hours. Yeah. It was just, I was just transformed. And that next day, this was, you know, I say late at night and I think I just slept in my car that night and I went home the next day to my parents' house and I just started helping them. So now it was about serving others rather than serving myself. Yeah. And uh, they didn't even know who I was. They're like, who is this guy? Because before then, I mean, 
Like now, you're looking at our house. Now you're, home. now you're not high and high and drunk or anything. And they're going, are you, are you, you on drugs? Well, or yeah, that, not only that, but just like, <laughs> this ain't like you, what's me. happening. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so like before that, you'd see my house and I had like 15 like holes. Like they used to say anything. I just punch a hole in the wall. Yeah. Um, and it just changed after that. So I'm 41 now. And that happened when I was 24. So in like 16 years, we haven't even so much as argued, like got an argument. Yeah. So, I mean, seriously. And uh, so it, it just re- it repaired everything. So that was kind of the next step on my journey was that. And then, um, yeah, from about 24 to 30, I was still drifting through life and I was still drinking some and I was still smoking pot, but it, it didn't come from a place of self-hatred. So yeah. I was more just like most guys that, at that age, like I say, didn't go to college and have a degree. I was bartending, just trying to find my way in life. Uh, but as far as that self-hatred, it was gone. And it, I, I, you know, it's, I, I've, I've been the same since then. Thank God. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And then, uh, like I say, around, around 30 is when I had my daughter and that's when, so in 11 years I've been drunk twice when she was born, I pretty much stopped drinking. I would socially drink here and there, but as far as waking up with a bottle and start to drink it, during mm-hmm. the day that that was done with, because she was my only blood I knew, you know, at that time. Uh, my only blood. So, well, I shouldn't say at that time still is my only blood. So, uh, I just had a new purpose in life. You know, I, I wanted oh, yeah. to be a father. I wanted to be somebody who wasn't there for me when I was a kid. Um, and she just changed everything in my life. So that was kind of the next chapter of my life. And, uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, after that, another major thing and people probably think this is crazy, but I say the third thing that really changed my life besides mushrooms, my daughter was I took up walking, um, walking long, long distances. And I'm not talking like walking a mile or two a day and go home. I'm talking like five, 10, 15, 20. Most I've walked in a day was 30. I walked 30 miles in a day before. Wow. And that was coming off a, and yeah, and that was coming off like a five day fast where I didn't eat. So, yeah. Um, walking is a major thing. And I never really understood how much, like what that was really doing scientifically, but there's a book out there and I recommend anybody get it, whether you're addicted to food, drugs, alcohol, pornography, it doesn't matter, but it's called Dopamine Nation. It's by Dr. Anna Lemke. And she just talks about one of the chapters in there is called, uh, it's about walking and it's called, uh, it's called self-binding. So before I started walking, I was in my car one day and I was praying and I was smoking about two packs of cigarettes a day. And that was the first thing I really wanted to quit was the cigarettes. And, uh, I was just praying to God. I'm like, what do I need to do? Like, just tell me what I need to do and I'll, I'll do it. And I'll start, start right now. And the message I got was just get out of your car and go walk, just go walk, leave your cigarettes in the car, go walk. And we'll figure this out as we go along. So I said, mm-hmm. all right, I'll go yeah. do it. So that day I walked and it was about six miles, took a little over an hour and a half. And, when I got back, I just felt totally refreshed. Like I felt like I'd been on vacation, you know, mentally. And the biggest thing referring back to that self binding is she talks about in this book, you put us, you put a physical barrier between you and your addiction, again, whether it's food or whatever it is. So she talks about just getting away from it. Well, when I started on these long walks, I'd be gone for an hour and a half, two hours. And I'm like, well, I can't, if I don't bring any cigarettes with me, I can't, I can't smoke. It's just impossible. So, Two hours turned into five or six hours. On the weekends, I'd walk for seven, eight hours at a time and just get out and go. Well, if I sleep for eight hours and I'm out walking for eight hours, 
that's two thirds of my day right there without having a cigarette in my hand. So it, it, it just made it so much easier because I feel like human beings, when we're sitting around the house and we're bored, that boredom leads to desires. And those desires lead to vices. And it makes, oh, it yeah. that, makes it that much harder to quit anything. So like I say, the message I got was just go walk. And I did. And really walking helped me quit cigarettes, helped me quit drinking completely, uh, helped me quit smoking marijuana every day. Because I just, if you leave me in my house right now all day, I'll, I'll end up eating everything in my refrigerator. Uh, I'll end up probably smoking pot again, whatever. But these walks is what really, really helped me. Um, and just mentally too, like my analogy for people is like, if you get a hose out in your, in your garage and you see it's got about, you know, 35 knots in it, you look at it and you're like, I don't even know where to begin with this thing. And that's how I felt like my life was like, there was so many knots in it. Yeah. So many tangles. I was like, I don't even know where, like, where do I even begin? So that's where walking came in. It kind of just untangled each little thing where my hose is, you know, it's not, not free, but it sure doesn't have as many knots as it used to in it. So I walk about five miles every day, no matter what. Um, on the weekends, I try to get in 10 miles and it's just, it, it saves me because anytime I'm about to go crazy with temptations, I just get out and go walk and they just, they just disappear. My uncle, he walks five miles a day or he did till he passed away, but mm. yeah, he, he, he would walk five miles a day. So, uh, yeah. It, I, I think, uh, of course, like I mentioned, I'm in a wheelchair. I, I try to get out at least five times a day, uh, five, not, not a day, five times a week and get mm-hmm. out and go push my wheelchair just to look at Mother Nature. I, I'm like you. I think just being out there, it gives you time to think through your problems, mm-hmm. um, gives you time to relax, gives you time, you know, for this exercise uh, to, to release some stress. There's mm-hmm. a lot of benefit in just getting out doing that you, you don't yeah. have to you don't have to swim a thousand miles you know right just, you gotta just get out there and walk just right you know people talk about how they meditate in the mornings you know or something part of my meditation is getting out pushing and right. just be up by myself and get that little exercise in and yeah yeah so i i, I consider it a big form of meditation for me yeah well that's the thing people need to change their perspective on exercise, not so much look at it as the aesthetics or the physical part of it and look at, look at it as a more mental benefits. Like, yeah, I can, I'm not going to get ripped and shredded and big out walking and maybe I'll keep off my weight, but that's not why I do it. I do it for the mental benefits. Mm-hmm. They're, they're priceless. You know, especially today's day and age with the cell phone and social media and just TVs on. I mean, like you were saying, there's there, to me, there's nothing better than getting out in nature. Um, that's a big thing. Like I said, we moved, we moved from Florida and like the beach is beautiful. We live by Siesta Key beach. It was beautiful, but like moving back here to Colorado, to me, there's nothing like the solitude of just getting out on a hike or out in the wherever. And I love humans. Don't get, don't get me wrong. I love my fellow man, but there's also a, there's a so time I want to be, be away yourself. from them. That's right. right. There, right. There, I'm like you. I, I love them, but there's times I want to get away from them. So, <laughs> right. uh, um, when in Colorado, I may be wrong. When in Colorado, uh, the guy, I can't think of his name, Aaron Rosin, that uh, got his arm trapped in that canyon. 
Was it? Oh, or was that Nevada? Where is it? That was. Uh, I think that was Utah. You're talking about that movie, Utah? 127 hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where he had his uh, arm trapped right, between a boulder and everything, and, yeah, and broke it loose off. and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Utah. Yeah, I think I think that was Utah. I could be wrong, but I I don't think it was Colorado. I know he was exactly. down in a canyon and everything. And uh, also, I want to mention you talk about uh, hiking. Well, I wish I can get out there and go hiking. Uh, I used to do that before I got in a wheelchair. But a buddy of mine, him and his wife, I think maybe two or three years ago, started going out hiking more. And I just told him, said, man, I wish I can go with you. You Just to yeah. see the caves and go exploring. And, yeah. And it's he, fun. He's Makes a, like a little kid. He's a, hey, Scott, I'm talking about you. Listen to this, man. That uh, <laughs> He's a, he's a, he's a, uh, Bigfoot believer. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. I, I'm not saying yes and no to it. Uh, I just <laughs> want to say I've never seen any proof of it. Okay. Right. You know, so so that, that's, that's me until I see some proof of Bigfoot. Uh, I'm hesitant to believe in him, but uh, my right. boy, Scott, he's a, he's a, he's a Bigfoot believer. So yeah. Yeah, hey, <laughs> we, we all have our own things. So that's good. Yeah. So, all right. So Aaron, if, um, uh, Aaron called you Aaron, thinking Aaron Rosson. Dallas, okay. Um, so if there was one thing that you would tell people it's uh, going through that struggle, and it doesn't have to be addiction or anything, just going through a struggle and they need to get out of it, what is the one key thing you think that ought to help them get started? Uh, I mean, I know it's going to sound cliche, but I mean, well, obviously I would say, the, I mean, yeah, walk. I mean, go out and walk, and that would be start there. But I would say more than anything is just don't quit or don't give up. And again, I know that sounds cliche, but that's like metaphors you'll get out when you're out, when you're out walking. And I'll explain this to you real quick. Is like when I I first started walking, I didn't like it. Right? I mean, who does? It's not yeah. fun. It's not boring. But you pick up so many life metaphors when you're out walking, and one of those is like when you start out on your journey you'll look across the way and you'll just look across the horizon over there and you're like, Oh my God, how am I going to walk that far? It just seems forever away, but it's just one step at a time and you'll eventually get there. And that's just like anything in life. You just, you obviously can't fly there. So don't worry about that, but just take one step. Slow motion is better than no motion. There you go. And eventually you will get there. So it's just, it's a life journey and just don't give up. Don't quit and set your intention, set your mind on something, be positive. And you know, you put in the work, you'll you'll get there. Um, so yeah, I've like told other people. Yeah, I've told other people who said, "I don't care if you're moving at a snail's pace. You know, as long as you're moving forward, right? In life, you know, and the old thing, you may take three steps forward, and then next thing you know, you have two steps back because something happened. But yeah, you're one step still in the good, right? You know, exactly for, for that. So uh, just well, learn from it. It get the experience and build a confidence on how you got through this to better prepare you for the next thing coming. Yeah. Well, I'd say too, that's another thing with walking is like, you'll walk, you'll walk a long distance and you'll look back and you'll say, man, look how far I've came. Like my daughter, I just like pulling teeth to get her to walk. And I'm always telling her like, just put your head down, just take one step. And then she'll do that. And then she'll look back and she'll like, Oh my gosh, dad, look how far we've gotten. And I yeah. say, it's just like life. You know what I mean? I mean, Maybe a month or two, you'll look back like, "Wow, I've already came this far." And just you know, like, exactly, exactly, uh -huh. yeah. A life, life, uh, 
what seems to be a long life, it's really a short span. And but you can, if you look at it carefully, you can see how far you have come in life, no matter what you've been beaten down with. And you'll see right. how far you really have come in life and, and to help other people and things. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell you just lastly here, my journey of addiction and struggles, it was really about 25 years. You know, I yeah. started on about 15 and uh, up until I, I got sober last year completely, like no drugs, no out, no nothing. Uh-huh. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was about 25 years of pain, but I just never gave up. I, I, I knew someday things can change. So just in a year, my life has changed. I mean, so much for the better. I'm coaching now. I'm helping other people. Um, and I never would have thought in a million years, three years ago, I could do that. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. What's the old uh, Garth Brooks song, The Dance, you know, couldn't experience, uh-huh. uh, you know, without the dance, you know. Right. So, you know, couldn't be where you're at if it wasn't for the struggles to build you, to put you where you're at today. Yeah, exactly. So. But Dallas, man, I'm glad I got to meet you on the the good side. I mean, I would love to meet you on the other side because yeah. I would I would have I would have been the one trying to give you the positive stuff to help beat yeah. you, you know, get you out of it. Right. Okay. But I'm glad that you found the way and and uh, have gotten over there. So uh, and you're going to help a lot of people. There's a yeah, you so. know as well as there's a lot of people that's going through this uh, A and D struggles and and they right. they just don't know how to jump off the train. Uh, right. successfully without suicidal attempts uh, from jumping. So yeah. um, so you, you're going to help people in the long run. I appreciate that. Well, so, thank you, sir. Hey, you got any uh, social media, anything you want to uh, push out for people to get hold of you? Yeah. Um, it's kind of where I talk to people on my coaching, uh, where I start out helping them with, again, uh-huh. weight loss, mindset, nutrition. Um, so it's kind of a play on words for walking, since, again, that changed my life. So it's Instagram handle. It's at the underscore walk underscore king okay good deal so the, the walk king there you go there you go and uh i'll get that link and put it into the show notes to make it easier for people right. to find so from there all right okay. well i appreciate you being here and before i forget like i did my last podcast dallas if you can leave us with a positive message we know that people are hurting and struggling today give them something to grab a hold of and get them through today uh, fill your heart with love and give people the benefit of the doubt. Always. I mean, look for the good in people. And, uh, you know, I teach my daughter this too, how the world is not as it is. The world is as we are. And it's how we see it. So if you see yourself in a, in a bright, positive light, you're going to see the world that way too. And I know that can be hard, but start with the inside. And if you do that, your exterior, your exterior world will change. Amen, brother. Yeah, we can't change and control the world itself, but we can our world and see the difference and know the difference we're making. So, all right, Dallas, I appreciate you being here, man. And uh, don't be what's called a stranger. I I enjoy talking with you today. So, (laughs) All right, well, thank you very much. All right, everybody else. Hey, I'm Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance. Thank you for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast. Be sure to share this out with someone you think that can use some nice motivation here, some nice inspiration, something to let you know that went from a rock to a nice life. So everybody else do something today, tomorrow, something next week that's going to help you persevere past your paralysis. Thanks for listening to the Professor of Perseverance podcast for motivation, inspiration, and encouragement. 
for more information, go to Facebook at Professor of Perseverance. Visit the website at ProfessorofPerseverance.com and view the YouTube channel, Dr. James Perdue, Professor of Perseverance.